to a hot start. It's, I mean, it's hot in the recording studio, <laughs> but it is cold outside. <laughs> very yeah. cold, very snowy. We had a classic nor'easter yesterday. Yeah. Um, lots of snow and sleet. Um, our first, our first snowstorm in like a while. Yeah. And um, we started posting or we posted a little like small piece to our Patreon just yes. for our little buddies. Yes, so that did. was there. So that was fun. We're going to do yes. one again tonight. Yes. I'm, I'm still deciding what we're going to talk about. I have two okay. things. I'll let you pick at the end of okay, the episode. That sounds good. <laughs> but I mean, I'm just really ready to get rearing because I think both of these women tonight are really cool. And I only knew a little bit about each of them. I know. Me too. So I'm super excited to get into both of them. Um, So, I mean, usually we say that's not what we heard to talk about but that's exactly what we're here to talk about is these two ladies we really are podcast called herstory mm-hmm. on the rocks with katie and Allie. uh this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history and we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because our women have nuance but keep in mind we are drinking the entire time hence the on the rocks <laughs> and uh we're not technical historians no. we've got some degrees spitter spattered between us but mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. we we're gonna drink and we're gonna mess up and we googled this to find all the info just like you absolutely all of our information is freely available yeah. <laughs> you're here for the comedy not yes. for the history exactly. or both maybe we, both. yes <laughs> not quite 50 50 but um but while you're listening to this you're probably if you live around here you are shoveling snow and you cannot get your phone out to look up what these women look like because you have the gloves on it's gonna fall in your snow pile actually your phone might not even work if it cuts out in the cold like that and be careful (laughs) don't lift too much snow at once that's like heart attack central yep exactly take care of yourself so take care of yourself um so in order to ease your heart and your mind we are going to describe what these women look like so you have a nice picture in your head we are going to get a little physical physical Allie, who are you doing? What does she look like? I am doing Alice Guy Blanchet. Mm. And Alice is a French woman with a very corseted waist. She had like that very thin shape that like Nellie Bly had, like uh-huh. almost in like uh-huh. a suited dress. Um, but she did widen with age. But in my opinion, she aged very gracefully. She had dark brown hair pulled up and tied in a bun. She had large arching eyebrows and a hooded eye with big puffy cheeks that were accentuated when she smiled. She wore traditional Victorian style clothing and looked very stoic in her still shots, but then could definitely be seen with a big smile when she's caught in a moving Mm. picture. Although you can find many images of Alice she always wanted to be behind the camera not in Ooh. front of it well, a little tidbit yeah. <laughs> who are you doing and what does she look like uh, I am doing Maya Lin um, so she is a petite Chinese American woman uh, we know she's petite because apparently she was always picked last for dodgeball when she was a kid <laughs> oh what a shame <laughs> me too um, she has a round face and a very cute and like small smile like her bottom lip is just like a little like it's like very full and she just just like when she smiles it is so freaking cute um she has dark black hair that has been all sorts of lengths and styles over the years she has a pretty minimalistic fashion sense uh she wears a lot of cute but sturdy outfits cozy sweaters and she can most often be seen now with ching uh chin length hair with bangs and dark framed glasses uh and that is what she looks like she's a real cutie she's so 
cute. I love pictures and I, of her. I love watching her talk too. Yeah. Because she has like kind of a serious expression, but then when she smiles, like her whole face changes. It's so great. Um, but yeah, but that's what she looked like. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear what her, the drink is for this woman because it looks, it's almost see-through. Yes, it is. Um, so this is called Cocktail 1026. It is an ounce and a half of gin, an ounce of elderflower liqueur, vanilla extract, um, and then you do um, a little bit of orange bitters, and then you shake that up and you put you top it all off with tonic, so it's kind of like a take on a gin and tonic, um, and then you just garnish it with a little like a like a wheel of lime, um, because a lot of her architecture is very circular in nature Ooh, um, what's it called uh this is called cocktail 1026 Ooh, cheers. cheers oh it's delicious mm. that's really good the vanilla adds a great element well and that's why i like to use um the, like actual vanilla extract in my mm. drinks instead of like like i do love using like vanilla vodka and stuff but I think vanilla gin is a little harder to find um and it i re- i just i think when you add vanilla extract it just really punches up the flavor it does i Um, love it it's like a nice um cupcake it's like a lime cupcake i feel like mm -hmm. Mm. Mm. well thank you for making me that this is going to be quite a night yes it will (laughs) so i'm really ready to hear her story because i only know one thing about her okay well what do you know (laughs) i know that she designed the memorial in washington dc the vietnam war memorial and i think it was like a um a contest Mm -hmm. entry and like if you guys haven't been to D.C. or seen it, it's like just a black wall that comes to a corner and there's just people's people who passed away in Vietnam, their names yeah. mm-hmm. just all across. And mm-hmm. um, it's definitely, I think, what some people would have originally assumed to be the most cold mm-hmm. statue in D.C., but it's actually become like such a wonderful memorial where people leave flowers and mm-hmm. pennies and go and touch the names of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. And like so... That's really all I know. I don't know anything about her artistic career other than she designed that one monument. Okay, perfect. Yeah, obviously that is going to be like the main part of this story is her journey with that monument. Um, And I just want to give a heads up that like there really isn't a lot on the rest of her life. So that will be the brunt of it. And there are also like there are different ways that the story is kind of told. So I kind of tried to piece it together. Uh, I got a lot of this from Wikipedia, from um, this art website called the art story um a podcast called what it takes um and just a couple other like random little websites and stuff and some like a vice youtube video things like that um but all right here we go Maya Lynn was born on October 5th, 1959 in Athens, Ohio. Her father, Henry Juan Lynn, was a ceramicist and the dean of the Ohio University College of Fine Arts. Wow. Yeah. Very important person. Big guy. Big guy. Yeah. Um, he had immigrated from China in 1948. And her mother, Julia Changlin, was a poet and a professor of literature at Ohio University. Again, very important person. Good genes. Good um, genes uh-huh, here. <laughs> who had immigrated from China in 1949. So she's first gener- generation. Yes, yeah, she is first generation. Yep. Her parents fled China just before communism like really took over. Mm. Uh, her father, Henry, had gotten out a year ahead of time. So um, he didn't really have much of an issue, but her mother had to be smuggled out on a junk boat in Shanghai Harbor in the midst of it, like being bombed. Wow. Yeah. She was like, Miles, like, yeah, my mom had like $20 sewn into her like coat and that was it. 
and she's coming to the U.S. because she was really intelligent and had gotten like a full ride to Smith College. Oh, my God. So she's coming here and she has to be smuggled out. It's insane. I can't believe that people like that, like, are in the realm of our lifetime. It's insane. It's unbelievable. So obviously her parents found each other and fell in love and they had Maya and her brother. Um, but I think because of all of this turmoil, they really embraced their new American identity and very much ignored their Chinese heritage. Like they did not talk about so it. So they like assimilated super quickly. Super quickly. Okay. Like Maya describes not even realizing she was Chinese until later in life. Hmm. She was like, I just thought I was like a normal, like American, like white Midwesterner. She was like, I mean, I worked at McDonald's for Christ's sake. She was Because <laughs> her and her brother were like the only like Chinese American kids around. But like, thankfully, I don't know where they were, but like, I mean, they're in this kind of like, university town. So like nobody treated them in a d- any differently. Hey, shout out to Ohio. Shout out to the- <laughs> Athens, Ohio. You did good. <laughs> she was like, yeah, I just didn't experience racism until I went to Denmark when I was in college. <laughs> nice job, Which Ohio. Which so crazy. Um, but yeah, she was like, I just thought of myself as a very normal Midwestern kid. <laughs> she was like, I eat that way. I speak that way. She was like, I just, yeah, I didn't really know I was Chinese until later in life. <laughs> Um, and it's really interesting because one of the things that she is missing in her childhood kind of is her family's very rich Chinese history. Her parents just didn't want to talk about it. So she really didn't realize until later that her family had ties to the Qing dynasty. Her great grandfather was like the emperor's teacher at one point. What? And on her mother's side, her aunt Lin Huayin is recognized as the first female architect in China. No. And she like didn't way. know. And, and she's going to be an architect. I don't know if she found out later, but it doesn't seem like that informed her decision at all. Also, I'm hoping that that's correct because I saw it on Wikipedia and I'm hoping that it wasn't just like put there by eh, someone. Somebody so found it. We'll see. Hopefully that's true. Um, hey, if it's not, just <laughs> let us know politely. Yeah, please let us know. Um, so another thing that made her childhood a little different is that she grew up around parents who like really valued hard work, but also creativity. Art was extremely important in their household. So Maya describes her childhood like her and her brother would get off the school bus and they'd go to their meet their parents at Ohio University. She goes, we would just walk past the playground <laughs> that was near the college campus and just go straight for like the ceramics lab and like the art studios. And she was like, and we would just play with all these, I mean, imagine having a college level art studio at your fingertips as a child. They created all sorts of insane stuff when they were kids. I mean, all kids really want to do is play with stuff they're not supposed to touch anyway. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. um, and she was a really good student. She was super duper smart. She goes, I was a big nerd. <laughs> she was like, I was really good at math. I was really good at English. So like some of my teachers thought I was going to go into math. Some thought I was going to be a writer, but I was just kind of quiet and kept to myself and like, I don't know. She was like, I just really liked school. <laughs> um, she liked to hike and bird watch, but she spent most of her time as a kid, again, in the art studios, not only building like little animals and stuff, but little towns and models Ooh. to her future career. <laughs> um, when she was attending Athens High School, she would take classes at Ohio University. Um, and really, she was just auditing them. And I mean, she wasn't getting any credit. She would just take them for fun because she loved 
learning. Um, so in 1977, she graduated from high school and went on to the prestigious Yale University, where she initially majored in um, like animal studies. Like she really wanted to be a vet. She was like, that's my life calling. And then she's like, uh, I don't know. And then she went into pre-med and then she's like, oh, I don't know. So she really didn't come into architecture until a little bit later. Interesting. Very interesting. Especially if you're going to like an Ivy League school, you assume you kind of oh, like yeah. have your path set. It's so funny because she describes herself as a very intense worrier. But like, I feel like a worrier would not just be like, "Mm, I don't know. Like (laughs) the way she describes her college career, I'm like, that would give me so much anxiety to like not know what I'm doing. Switch majors three times. (laughs) She's probably like, I don't know if I love this. I'm changing. Right. But also maybe it's because she grew up around academia and her parents don't seem like they were ever like, this is what you're supposed to do. Like Mm. her parents are like, yeah, whatever you want to do. Like, college is for everybody so like you know i mean obviously yale is not for everybody <laughs> but they're like they're i think their view on it was like yeah just find what fits because she's like yeah i've been taking college classes basically my whole life so like this is fine whatever <laughs> so she's at yale she's doing her thing she's getting good grades she spends her junior year in denmark because then she really gets the architecture bug and she's like denmark is where it's at so she spends a year there um or again is where she experienced racism for the first time because when she she went there and it was like really warm out and she got suntan and so a lot of the um danish people mistook her for greenlandish i it was really wild to hear her talk about it she was like yeah so like when my skin got a little darker she was like they all thought i was from greenland and they were really prejudiced to me because of that not even because i was chinese (laughs) (laughs) that's that's absurd i know it's really wild hearing her talk about it um but it's like is denmark like an architecture like hub so like apparently the guy who made like the egg the very famous like egg chairs from denmark and she was like that's where i need to be (laughs) um but also like one of the things she really wanted to study was how we build graveyards she was really interested in how cities and communities like treat their dead so they have really interesting ways of making graveyards in europe because they have very little space oh yeah i think there's like a three-month turnaround or three three year turnaround in some places where it's like you can be buried for three years but then we're gonna dig it up yeah and in some places like graveyards are parks that where children play because it's like yeah we can't have a graveyard and a park so it will just be both right and like we have to find ways to incorporate the dead into our lives yeah it's high population density there's nothing you can do because in america we like to ignore it it's like that's the old cemetery we don't talk about it we don't go there like you know what i'm saying and it sucks because they're beautiful green spaces i mean even in like manhattan like i've been driving through and seen like a field of a graveyard and i was like what is happening Mm -hmm. (laughs) maybe not manhattan but in new york city i was i got lost and i was driving Mm -hmm. you have to tell me where my new yorkers because i I definitely (laughs) where are your dead i was driving it might have been brooklyn i was like driving through and i was like what is happening yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so she gets back from denmark and she and her other fellow seniors who had also been on this trip they go to their like department and they're like we want to create a class all about this all about like you know architecture and the dead and they're like okay (laughs) do you know what you want to do do you want to be cremated do you want to be buried i would love to do that thing where you get made into a tree i think that that is so such a better solution that's what we do um, now that's what producer wants to do yeah i just think it's such a great 
Like, why not? That sounds lovely. They've started putting people in like mushroom suits so yeah. their bodies turn into like fungi. There we go. I want to be compressed into two diamonds. I love that. For my kids. <laughs> but I told them not to worry if they lose me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's okay. Just keep it for now. And yeah. Eliza's like, no, I'll be devastated. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, maybe not. Never mind on the diamond <laughs> idea. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, listeners, let us know. What do you want to happen? Um, <laughs> what, what, so, what, what do you what have in your living will? <laughs> What's in your will? Um, just kidding. That's so morbid. You don't have to tell us. Yes, you do. Um, so they start this class. They're in this class. And the Vietnam Veterans Association decides that they are ready to, like, start taking submissions to build the Vietnam War Memorial. And they decide that it will be an open contest. This contest is open to everyone. Anyone can just go submit their design. It's not just for professional architects. And there's just one stipulation. It has to include the names of the fallen soldiers. That's the only thing. I didn't know that. So her professor kind of like takes this opportunity. He's like, okay, this is exactly what we're talking about. How do we live with and honor the dead in our society? And so he's like... I want you all to design your own, you know, Vietnam War Memorial. So the whole class starts designing their own version of it. They don't have to submit it. But Maya does. And her professor does. (laughs) Maya got a B plus on this assignment. (laughs) I love that. Um, But That's because her professor was like, shit. Yeah, her professor was like, god damn it. She got it over me. Um, But... In the beginning, she was really trying to think about what this memorial should be. She kind of mulls it over for a period of time. And then the idea kind of came to her in a flash one night. She just imagined herself cutting into the earth and like glazing the side. And she kind of was like, that's what it should be. It should be like you're digging into the earth. But Anyway, so they, that's like her design. She kind of goes with it and it's very minimal. Like when you see the design, like, especially just like the general plans of it. Like one of the guys on the committee was like, I thought it was a bat. He goes, I didn't know what it was, but I liked it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which I mean, it's, it's saying a lot too, because the two wars right before that, like the world war two memorial is like a palace, a palace with fountains and states. And then the Korean war memorial is very lovely, but a set of soldiers walking with um like these big ponchos on Mm. and it's just like 12 men just like walking and you can walk through them like you can Mm. be a part of these soldiers but it's like those are the two wars like directly before yeah and then to have just like this black marble slab yeah okay yep um so she submits it this committee made up of primarily professional architects looks at 1,421 designs and they come across this extremely moving piece. It's abstract, but beautiful. It's just this long black mark in the middle of a green hill. And they're like, yeah, that's fucking it. So they pick the design only knowing the project number project 1026, which is what this cocktail is named after. Perfect. (laughs) Um, Again, they made the contest anonymous so they wouldn't just pick that one, you know, John Smith, the one that John Smith designed, you know, like some random yeah, fucking Jamestown, white guy, yeah. whatever. Um, and Maya said that in an interview, she's like, it's she's like, my design would not have been picked if they knew that I was 
like a young Chinese American woman. She was like, I just know it. It wouldn't have been picked. It just wouldn't. Um, So I'm going to describe her design a little bit. Um, So in her design, it's two black granite pieces that are nestled into a hill. Like, so she, she literally did cut into a hill. The two ends start small and then rise to meet each other in the middle. Included in the granite are the dates 1959 and 1975. And then as you walk through the memorial, you are greeted with the names of all the soldiers who were killed in the Vietnam War. And uh, Maya said that they should be specifically listed via the time of their death in order of how they died, which is not how memorials were done. They were always done alphabetically. So you start with the first man killed. And you feel the impact of seeing the names become more and more and more until you're at the height of the memorial. And it's 10 feet tall and the height of death. And you see them taper off until the last name of the last man killed in the war. One art historian described it as like a clock of death because like you can't escape that that's what happens in war is like it just gets so fucking bad i didn't realize it was like a bell curve like yeah. i knew it was designed like that but yeah. i didn't understand that it was a parabola on purpose mm-hmm. okay that's very interesting and one of the things that makes this design element important is when some veterans go to a specific area of the memorial they see the time that they were deployed because it was 18 months like of service typically so they're not seeing just like a random list of all guys who had the last name that started with G. It's like, these are the people who passed when I was there. Yeah. These are the people mm. that died while I was there. These are the men that I was serving with in my platoon. And it, it creates this incredible experience of like, oh my gosh, these are my guys in this one portion of the plaque. Or like, this is the battle I was in. Yeah. Yeah. And the names are also written in a way that strips away any other information about them it doesn't include their hometown their age their rank or anything like that it is just their name and just this eerie equality of death but the most important part is that while you're standing there reading the names the granite is specifically dark and smooth and shiny so that you see yourself reflected in the names of the soldier The reflection of the world around us represents the world that we live in and the one that we cannot enter. She said that her inspiration for this was of the Greek character Orpheus, who gets to see the land of the dead, but ultimately gets to walk back to the land of the living. And it kind of reminds us that it's our privilege to do so. She said, if we can't face death, we'll never overcome it. You have to look it straight in the eye. Then you can turn around and walk back out into the light. This piece was meant to be a wound that is deep, but will indeed heal, but one that we will not forget. And the memorial was said to be oriented so that each arm of the wall kind of reaches out to the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial, joining past and present. So... For all those reasons, obviously. And like she wrote an incredible essay to go along with it, which I think some people may not have done. So because it's not obvious, which again is why they liked it. So they pick it. They're like, this is so moving. It's artistic. They love that everything involved had this greater meaning and that it was it was an experience. So they announced that they have found their architect and they're like, all right, who is it? 
Show us the name. And it is 21-year-old <laughs> Chinese-American student named Maya Lin. So just a few months after she had submitted the project, she comes back. It's her final day of classes. And these three adult men are sitting in her dorm room at Yale being like, hey, you won. <laughs> and she's like, what? She's like, is it the blue pill or like, the red pill? Yeah. And like, so... There's talking to her and she's like, okay, what is, what is happening? And he's like, all right, blah, 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 like da, 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 cause you won, uh, and so forth and so on. And she's like, hold on. What did I win? I, I won. And they're like, yeah, I'm sorry. We didn't mention that from the get go. <laughs> um, but Maya said to, she was like, okay, I really have to keep like a calm demeanor about this. <laughs> um, cause she had studied like monuments and she was like, they never fucking get built. So she's yeah. like, okay, yeah, I won. But what does that really mean? Right. Um, <laughs> So she goes to Washington with them and they start going through all the committees. It has to go through like five different committees and like in order to get it like officially approved. Um, But then it comes time for her name and design to be announced. So she's already entrenched in this process. Like some of the construction, I think, is like art. Like they've already started like shipping stuff for this thing. (laughs) They're ready to cut. Yeah, they are ready to cut into the earth. Um, And it's announced and people are not super pleased vietnam war veterans who granted had been through enough already were absolutely livid they said that is an ugly black gash and the fact that you have it hidden in a hill makes us feel like we're just a shameful group of people that you don't want to be bothered with anymore and because again like like you were saying earlier This is the first of its kind. Memorials were big bronze statues of heroic soldiers and American flags. And these guys didn't want an artistic interpretation of a war memorial. They wanted to feel like the U.S. respected them. And this was not it. They felt offended that the the designer was a student and not a professional architect. They're like, you let a kid... Did we finally get a memorial and you let a fucking oh, child design give it? Give it a chance, boys. Give they, it a chance. I know. They felt offended that it was a woman who had never seen combat. And they especially felt offended that it was an Asian, Asian woman. woman. Yeah, that I was, was wondering when that was going to come into play. Because honestly, I've always assumed that she was Vietnamese. Mm-mm. Which I just, I mean, I guess I know thinking about the last name Lin, I think I kind of might yeah. know that. But, like, I don't know why. I've just always assumed, like, oh, she's a Vietnamese-American right. woman. Like, of course she would design it. Now right. I'm realizing, like, oh, why did she have to be Vietman- Vietnamese? Right. <laughs> makes no sense. <clears throat> um, and then, like, while she's kind of being interviewed, it kind of comes out that she really didn't know anything about the war. Which, again, people saw as a huge slap in the face. Mm. But Maya said, no, I specifically did not research this war because i mean obviously i knew about it It was happening when i was a child but i didn't want to get too involved in what really happened and what people's reactions were because this war had already been so heavily politicized that i wanted to focus focus every bit of my energy and time on those soldiers who gave their life because at the end of the day that's who matters and politics are irrelevant to what this memorial is supposed to be hell yeah yeah seriously hell yeah she's like yeah i didn't do that i did it on purpose she was like this war was such a fucking mess and a nightmare for so many people that like i just wanted to focus on the people like and that's how she has done every memorial since she's like i want it for like people to come here i want it to be this individual experience like 
And I mean, for anybody like that isn't from the U.S., I'm sure you know about this, but like when Vietnam, the Vietnam War was very protested in the United States. And Mm -hmm. when their soldiers came back, they were like spit on in the streets. Like there was so much controversy over this war. Like there's a lot of people who like from the Vietnam War who don't even like to celebrate Veterans Day because they're just like, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. They couldn't like wear their uniforms out in public. People would like throw things at them. There were no like like, ticker tape parades. No. It was bad for them. Yeah. And I want to make it clear that it obviously was not all Vietnam War veterans, but the ones who were angry were really fucking angry and vocal. And in a way, like I understand and Maya understood like why they felt so hurt. I mean, like you said, when they came home, they were so scarred and disrespected and just offended. And then they fight really hard for a memorial. And it's something that is so unlike every other memorial out there that it, they were like, this is a huge middle finger to us. Like, you obviously don't care about us um, because they really couldn't see her vision and what it was meant to be. They just felt like it was another way the U.S. had disappointed them. And it just it sucked. Um And some politicians obviously got on the bandwagon and hated it, too. Uh, James Webb, a senator from Virginia, said, I never in my wildest dreamed imagined such a nihilistic slab of stone. Ross Perot, who famously uh, ran for president, he was a Texas billionaire um, who, like, when he heard about the project, he was like, I'm donating all this money to it. Um, And then once he found out that like he saw the design and found out that it was designed by an Asian American woman. He threatened to pool all of the money he had donated. <laughs> Very cool. Ross saying Perot. he didn't want the designer to be a quote egg roll. Oh my God. Yeah. And James Watt secretary of the interior wouldn't grant them the land permit to start building it. Everybody is. It's literally the best monument in D.C. I know the backlash involved racist political cartoons of Maya heated news articles about her design, racist slurs thrown at her, which I will not repeat. Um, Please death threats, letters. Thankfully, like the committee really believed in her. So they took most of the brunt. Like they tried to shield Maya from a lot of it. Like she was a kid. Yeah. They didn't let her read any of the letters. Like they're like, you don't need this. Um, it just, it was horrible. Um, and of course a lot of public forums on like, (laughs) we want this completely thrown out. Um, and in actually the very first press conference about the memorial, one reporter pointedly asked her, well, don't you think it's a little ironic for a person of Asian descent to build the Vietnam war memorial? And Maya said, frankly, I think it's irrelevant. Like, (laughs) I just, uh, and what a shame it would have been if it was never built. Yeah. What a shame. I know. I mean, and in the documentary of Myelin, A Strong, Clear Vision, that was made in 1995, you can watch footage of some of these meetings where the people are, like these Vietnam veterans, are just expressing their offense and disgust with this memorial. And you can just see Maya in the room just sad and disappointed. Um, again, ultimately, it had to go through five different government committees. Um, but other than some pushback from these veterans, Maya said that it was kind of smooth sailing. Like everybody really liked and believed in the design. Um, the commission tried to reach a compromise. They went to Maya and were like, well, what if we just changed it up? You know, they're like, what do we, we can put some bronze soldiers right in the middle, like at the apex. We can put a big American flag on type. What if we used white marble instead of this black stuff? Everybody loves white marble. DC's truck full of it. No. 
And I really think we should put the names in alphabetical order. And Maya said, no, 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 absolutely not. She goes, I will not change my design or let you alter it in any way. And she stood her ground for a year fighting in D.C. for her design. And she did not back down. Damn. I know. She actually, she had started her master's degree this year because she was graduating. She graduated from (laughs) Yale and started a master's degree at Harvard. And she had to stop because she spent that whole year in D.C. She was like, I can't do both. So she had to put that on hold. She does go back. (laughs) She's got to fight for her money. Yeah, she had to fight for it. So in 1982, Maya's memorial was built just the way she designed it which she said is an absolute miracle. <laughs> Seriously, I can't think of one thing that isn't yeah, changed. I know. Even she like she was talking to her, she's like even the Washington Monument, she was like they fought for so many years about why isn't there a thing of George Washington on a freaking horse like right in the middle of it that the <laughs> we stone, got enough of those. The stone changed colors. <laughs> like that's why half the Washington Monument is a different color she was like and if you look at some of the original designs for like other memorials they're so different hers is one of the only ones that really is untouched it's that paper she wrote oh my gosh that's what it is so at the end of the day though Maya can say that she stuck to her guns and her strong clear vision and they did reach a little bit of a compromise. So they did get their big bronze statues, but they were to be put, quote, at a significant distance from her. <laughs> so it's not to interfere. Um, so this other memorial is a statue called the Three Servicemen, sometimes called the Three Soldiers. This statue depicts three soldiers purposefully identifiable as European American, African American, and Hispanic American. Um, in their final arrangement, the statue and the wall appear to kind of interact with each other. Like the soldiers are kind of looking on at it. You I know? didn't even know that was there. Yeah. I've it, never even looked at it. I was like, this needs to be like far off to the side. Um, so, <laughs> but the, the thing is like, they're like, oh no, this is part of it. They're looking at it. Um, <laughs> um, this memorial um so her memorial was dedicated on november 13th 19 oh there also is a vietnam women's more memorial somewhere in this area too yeah i think um i think it's the first american war that had like official female casualties mm-hmm. i think six six women soldiers died yeah. in the war mm-hmm. or something like that something like that i don't know my didn't design it so that's yeah. somewhere else yeah forget um, that i'm not talking about it we, lo- we <laughs> probably love should the- have. we love those women good for you <laughs> Woo. Um, I'm making up numbers here. So, so it's okay. if that fact is right, then somebody yeah, buy me a drink. Let us know. Buy me um, a drink if it's six people. <laughs> on our Patreon. Um, <laughs> so on November 13th, 1982, they had the official like dedication and celebration. It was a five day ceremony that began on November 10th. Um, but hers was specifically dedicated on the 13th. Um, well, the 11th is um, Veterans Day. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, presided over by President Ronald Reagan. Um, and during this event, tens of thousands of Vietnam War veterans proceeded through the memorial. And as they walked through and saw themselves reflected in the names of lost friends and fellow servicemen, they had the exact emotional response that Maya had envisioned. Many of them became extremely emotional and just started breaking down crying. A newscaster reported, um, a, a newscaster reporting said it was a day and a place where it was okay for grown men to cry. 
to be clear, it's okay. It's always all the okay. Time. <laughs> it's always okay. You're always allowed to cry, grown um, men. <laughs> but that's how effective it was. And for a lot of these guys, it was the first time that they had been honored in any way. The first time that people shook their hands and said, thank you for your service. The first time that they could say with any sense of pride, I am a veteran of the Vietnam War. It's, oh my God. I was like watching the videos and then going through and they are, and like, because these poor guys, I mean, a lot of them also came back like addicted to heroin because like drugs like were really easy to get over there and it helped them cope with all the shit going on. And, and like, they were drafted. This is, yeah, dra- this is a war that the draft. So yeah. many drafted people and like just they, and again, they were just treated like garbage and they didn't deserve that at all. And I just, I feel so bad for them. And like seeing their reaction to this memorial was incredibly moving. Um, The memorial is now considered one of the best and most famous war memorials in the world. And it literally changed the way that people thought of memorials. And we see that with Holocaust memorials and the 9-11 memorial in New York. It's not just a statue of a guy on a horse anymore. It is something to be experienced and felt like I always think of the 9-11 memorial. It's just this dark square hole. It's like a chasm. It's a chasm. Yeah. Because that's how you feel. Like when you look at it and you remember what happened. Oh yeah. And the, um, the Holocaust Memorial in Boston is astounding. Can you describe? Cause I was, I was thinking of that too. Yeah. So, uh, I went to Boston, uh, maybe two summers ago with my daughters and we were walking through and there are six massive columns. I mean, maybe five stories, three to five stories for each column. And then every square foot just has numbers and they're the tattooed numbers of um jewish and others who were interned during the holocaust people who passed and it is like you look at one square inch and there's i want to say maybe 30 names on a square inch and then you look up to the sky and then you realize there's 12 of them and you for the or six of them and you for the first time realize what 12 million people looks like yeah when you're like this, there's such little numbers and they're all over these reaching up to the sky. Yeah. And I remember my daughters being like, all those numbers stand for a person. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. Yeah. That's how many people were murdered. Isn't that fucking horrible? Yeah. Well, it's beautiful. Have you been there? No, I haven't. Oh, it's <sighs> stunning. I really want to go there. I just happened upon it, yeah. upon it too. It was on accident. It's incredible because... Like she was describing also, she was like, you know, war memorials were kind of built by the winners as a symbol of like, we won. And like, they always built them to be like, this one guy represents all of us. And it's like, yeah, but that's like a general with like all these like nice things and like whatever. And it's like that she was like, I wanted to do something that honored the foot soldiers, the people that like, you know, aren't acknowledged as often and it's also a massive difference because if you go to something like the memorial for the battle of yorktown which Mm -hmm. ended the revolutionary war like 150 people died americans and then Mm -hmm. like another 100 french people it's like okay i can count them like you know and it's not that their lives weren't important of course they were but war has become so massive that you're talking thousands of casualties i mean the names on this are i think uh over fifty-eight thousand. yeah over and they keep and like now that they have been coming across so like more get etched on over the years right like beautiful so 
all this happens, the, the dedication, you know, it takes some time for some people to come around to it, but it eventually is like legendary. Um, Maya's name was never mentioned in the ceremony. Of course not. <laughs> um, but nowadays when she's asked about her memorial, she says, well, I mean, it's not my memorial. It belongs to the veterans and their and the families of those who died. And it has always belonged to them. I have simply given it to them. It does not belong to like she says that frequently. So humble. So humble. Um, so after this, Maya obviously graduated and she did end up getting her master's um, in architecture from Yale in 1986. So she started at Harvard, but then like ended up doing it at Yale. Um, but she doesn't really consider herself an architect. She always says she is a designer and an artist um, who happens to work in architecture and like build buildings. <laughs> um, and you can really see that in the things she creates. She has been commissioned to create all sorts of memorials since her first one, including the infamous, I mean, beautiful civil rights memorial in 1989, which you can find in Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. Um, it is like kind of like a, again, like a clockwork and it dates like all the significant events of the civil rights movement. And it also honors the people who died for the civil rights movement. Mm. Um, it's really beautiful. Um, and she also created the women's table memorial at Yale university, which remembers like all the women who have like built and been a part of Yale university. And it's great because it's, this one is not names. It's a series of numbers and it starts at zero because that's how many women were <laughs> allowed at Yale in the beginning. <laughs> and it, it continues on. And each number is how many women were admitted to Yale like the next year and the next year and the next year. <laughs> so cool. And it's meant to kind of be continued and be infinite because she's like, oh, I'm, obviously this will never end, hopefully. So <laughs> um, now she now a days she is more well known for her large scale art installations and her like topography designs one of her best works is called wave field and it's literally just like a field which used to be like a gravel pit um which has been like built and curved with these grassy hills and it literally looks like a body of green water like which is little waves and ripples it is beautiful mm. uh, versions of this can be found in florida um and at the university of michigan and ann arbor and the storm king art center in new york um and maya has like <laughs> so one of the things that she says is like you know she's like you know I'm, I'm not an architect i'm an artist because she was like sometimes i would go into meetings and with like professional you know like other architects and it was all like all male firms and uh, she goes once i was patted on the head and they said good job on this <laughs> oh my god like she's a dog yeah uh, wow. another time she walked into a meeting and was given milk and cookies sounds nice <laughs> sounds a little nice it's like is she santa claus like what is this like uh if you're not leaving like, santa a guinness it's like do you know what, what is doing? so uncomfortable um being the only woman in the room and having a plate of milk and cookies in front of you <laughs> but wait, like, she's the only yes <laughs> oh my god i would start eating them and being like does anybody else want some cookies these are great like these are all mine fuck you all um <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. I wish so, it was a juice box. I mean, for this and many other reasons, she has decided to stay in a more creative space. Um, <laughs> she is also a very dedicated environmental activist. She 
has just committed herself to using as much recycled material as possible in her art and like creating green spaces. So like the wave field used to be a gravel pit. Now it is a beautiful, lush, green field of grass. Leslie, nope. I know. <laughs> into the pit. Good old Andy. Um, for example, in her installation called Groundswell, she took broken glass from car windshields. Like, you know how like when windshield glass shatters, it go it like it gets really small. Yeah, it's like shatterproof. Yeah. yeah. And so she used all the broken glass from these car windshields to create waves and fill unused spaces. It's kind all right, it's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> I don't I, understand what you're saying. Okay, I'm going to look up a picture of it because okay. when you see it, you are going to be like, oh my God, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my entire fucking Yeah, because life. I'm very confused about just like so it's like a negative space that she's filling in yeah so you know how like sometimes in college campuses there'll be like a space between two buildings and like there'll be like glass walls kind of between you're like nobody goes there yeah you know i do um, i do know what you mean yeah that makes sense Lynn. okay so okay this is what it looks like well, that's nice. Isn't that beautiful? Um, and because it like the glass gets kind of blue, like it just looks like a big sparkly ocean. But she like creates like little hills and mounds out of it. And it just fills these unused spaces with material that was going to be thrown away. Right. So it's just like hanging out there. Yeah, it's just there. And it's beautiful. Nice little nice little art piece there on the side. Yeah, I'm sorry. The um the brightness on my phone was not up at all. Uh, um, I actually appreciate that. So I oh, really? stared at a computer all day. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite version of it. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I'll post. I'll, I will actually post photos of all this because it's You're hard to explain. You're a I'm, liar. I'm real, I know. I probably am. I'm so bad at <laughs> posting photos. Um, so she creates stuff like that. Um, and then she worked on the Confluence Project. So this is a series of outdoor installations and interpretive artworks located in public parks all along the Columbia River and its tributaries in Washington and Oregon. So they asked her to create something that kind of honored the travels of Lewis and Clark. And she was like, I mean because of them a lot of like land was stolen and some native american tribes like <laughs> really suffered so some. like um <laughs> <Just> some <laughs> not all of them so she decided that each art installation would explore the confluence of history culture and the ecology of the columbia river system so the project draws on the region's history including the native american traditional stories entries from lewis and clark's um journals um, to, quote, evoke a landscape and a way of life submerged in time and memory. Mm. Um, so the project reaches from the Columbia River to Hell's Canyon. Um, and one of her main pieces is a beautiful piece called Bird Blind. Um, so imagine, like, a boardwalk in a marshy... Like, you know how, like, in um, Assateague, you have, like, the yeah. boardwalks in the marshy areas, but it's, like, in the woods. Right. And then she kind of has the has these offshoots. So, you know, like, the little areas where we go and watch the ponies, but you're not watching ponies. You're kind of in like an like a round enclosure, mm. and uh, the walls are built of these little tiny slats, oh. these little wooden slats. They're beautiful, and etched very delicately in these slats are the names of different birds that used to be native to the area, and have now are either extinct or endangered because wow. of humans. So. It's kind of like, yes, like, let's acknowledge how beautiful the space is. But, like, 
remember how beautiful it was when we had before we destroyed it yeah. before we destroyed it you know also just- in the spirit of making fun of each other for how we say things can you say pony again in how baltimore pony. Pony. that's the most baltimore way anybody can say pony i've ever heard in my life pony pony um oh our o's are excellent here oh my gosh i love how like in 30 rock like um, Avery Jessup is from Baltimore and she was like oh yeah she was like I used to do commercials for like o.com and it's like she was like oh she was like oh can you turn the light on <laughs> it's great um so in what she is calling her last memorial Maya has created a global multimedia project aimed at drawing attention to the rapid loss of biodiversity and natural abundance. Whoa. So it's all kind of centered around this interactive website that features more than 75 videos um, and scores of audio recordings of birds and animals and photos and text that are all like an allergy for the lost and threatened species. So it'll be like, here's a warbler. The warbler will be extinct in 10 years. So let's remember how it sounded. And so she encourages anyone who like has these audio recordings because obviously like species are dying left and right. So she's like, if you have any that are extinct, bring them to the website, you know, so we can remember. Um, And to be honest with you, and like there are some also like real like parts of it out in the world, like but I I couldn't quite grasp this one, to be honest with you, like, because I can't really see it. Uh-huh. Um, because, it's like a virtual slash real yeah, thing. Yeah, because you needed a special flash plug for the website, which mm-hmm. I didn't have on my computer, apparently, mm-hmm. so I couldn't access the website. Um, but the whole point of the project, again, is to call our attention to climate change and what we have done to this world and what we have lost, um, while also appreciating what we still have. Um, so... She has obviously received countless, countless awards, but her most prominent is the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which she received from Barack Obama in 2016, Mm. um, which I love in his thing. He's like, "Uh, here we are today to honor Maya Lin, who created one of the most famous pieces of like memorial like in the world. Uh, for which she received a B plus. Um, <laughs> he goes, so to all you B plus students, you're on to something. <laughs> oh, Barry. You're so fun. Um, but other than creating incredible art, Maya is married to a photographer. Like he like photography. He's like a photography curator kind of named Daniel Wolf. They met while she was backpacking in Colorado. Apparently there was this terrible electrical storm and they both sought refuge in the same horse trailer and <laughs> fell in love. They would. They would. I know. Um, Too cute. They have been together ever since. This happened in like the 90s. Um, and they have two beautiful daughters, India and Rachel, and they just live and create art in new york she's currently 61 years old um her legacy also lives on in the documentary i mentioned earlier maya lynn a strong clear vision which was made in 1995 um but this is all we really know because it's all she really cares to share with us good for her (laughs) good for her she's very private and like that's totally fine because i think that her feelings are out in the world via her art which is incredible um honestly it's kind of difficult to really finish off her story on a podcast because it is a very visual story um, and the real just honesty of Maya Lin resides in her body of work. So I'm going to end today by encouraging everyone to look up all the incredible things she has created and just take a moment to appreciate them. Oh, 
And so even, <laughs> I mean, for real, even though too, like looking at some of the pictures of like Vietnam soldiers looking mm. into her monument are, I mean, they're stunning. They're, they're so st- moving. Stunning. My favorite is like when there's just one and it's kind of on the far end. So the Washington monument is also reflected mm-hmm. because it reflects that too. Yeah. And like, oh, it's just, it's so moving. It is. Good job. Yeah, thank you. And Good I, job making something that's super famous. <laughs> um, and I also, I love too that like it's, and when we're, I didn't mention this, but like people leave things there, which is really nice. Like you mentioned, and people Flowers. also like, they take paper and they make rubbings of their loved one's names. They really Indiana Jones the they whole really thing. They really do. They do. Um, which is something like, I was like, oh, should I make a big deal out of it? But then like, I feel like people do that with a lot of monuments. So like, I didn't, I don't know if it's like really specific to this one. Um, but yeah, but people do that a lot. So yeah, well, it's, if it's time stamped and all your, all your friends are right next to each other, yeah. that's cool. Be, yeah. So, mm. so yeah, so that's it. Um, so we are going to get some more drinks and then we'll be back with part two. Okay. I'm ready. Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you're a history nerd or even a history hater, this is the podcast for you. Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. Things like how the Bonnie Prince Charles and his Jacobite uprising was a bit of a disaster. Yeah, or how the pharaoh Akhenaten was so disliked by Egyptians that they literally purged his name from nearly all of their records and pretended like he had never existed. And we do all of this while drinking and rating a custom-made cocktail specific to that week's topic. So grab a drink, take a seat, and hang out with us each week as we learn all about history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. All right, we're back. We have two new cocktails. We do. I'm very excited mm-hmm. about it. It's yellow and bright in the midst of this dark week. <laughs> yeah. Allie, what is this cocktail? Can you tell me about it? Yeah, so this cocktail is called Be Natural. Ooh. And it is two and a half ounces of gin. Oh, my God. It's lots of gin in there, my girl. You want me to die? I- no. <laughs> I really like you. I'll order you Chinese food to sober you up. Um, But it also has three-fourths ounces of fresh lemon juice, but it's not like squeezed out of a lemon or out of that lemon-shaped thing from the grocery store. It's like really like organic style okay my friend so go to the gave glass, it to me glass to the glass bottle. juice sections yes, my glass friend. bottle here <laughs> and then it's three-fourths ounces of simple syrup Ooh. and it's just on ice it's just a natural cocktail just like simple i love ingredients it. Ah, perfect well cheers mm. see that so natural good. lemon juice makes it not tart you see what i'm saying yes let me tell you, um, ever since one night <laughs> where you and fiance were just drinking straight lemon juice and vodka. Lemon drops, man. I have always like loved just lemon juice and a liquor. I love it. <laughs> it's so good and simple. And I love it. 
I mean, you guys got wasted. Um, I had like one. I you guys had like wasted. Six. <laughs> I don't even remember this. <laughs> we drink together too much. Yes, we do. Um, so, well, this is delicious. I love it. Yeah. And this is a request. This is our first Ooh. request of season eight. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. So this is from Rebecca Denauer, I okay. believe is how you say her last name. And she said, I really want you guys to do Alice. Alice Guy Blanchet. And I was like, okay. And it turns out awesome. And I, I'm glad you pronounced it because I thought it was Guy Blanche. Yeah. So uh, I did Blanchet. too. I did Guy too, Blanchet. but I watched and listened to a lot of things. Alice Perfect. Guy Blanchet. Alice Guy Blanchet. I love it. Okay. Well, thank you for requesting this. What a great request. And then we are going to try to weave in like one every episode so we can like still, because we still have like 30 on our list and we, we just love you guys so much. And we're so glad to meet women like this on a weekly basis. Yes. Mm-hmm. So what do you know about Alice? Okay. So I remember when we were doing our show in New York um, that someone else covered her. I don't remember what they said because I was just delirious and wasted. We had had like seven bottles of wine. Um, And that was (laughs) Olivia's fault. Olivia, that's your fault. That was your fault. Um, (laughs) But it was a great fault. I loved it. Um, But yeah, I remember all whenever I picture her, I just picture that one famous photo of her like in her because I think she was a film star that really wanted to direct. And so she's like in her costume and like moving the camera and like looking through the little lens. So like that's all I know is that she was an actress who really wanted to be like you said in the physical be behind the camera. Possibly. Ooh, okay. So she, uh, her history had been entirely lost until recently. <gasps> Ooh, okay. Um, and we didn't know how incredible she was. <gasps> and this is like new discovery, like within the last year and a half. Like people found out. Oh my gosh. For real. So it's very cool. So in terms of sources, Alice did write her own autobiography. Uh, originally in French. It has been translated into other languages. There's a couple short documentaries and mentions of her in like books in places here and there. Her Wikipedia page is actually pretty inclusive, Hmm. um, which is really nice, but it's missing like the heart of the story. They always are. I know. And it's just because everything has to be backed by a source. It can't be like an op-ed piece. You know what I mean? Which I get it. I totally get that. But then here's where I found the meat of this. And then I extrapolated from there. There is this documentary called Be Natural, (gasps) which is the name of the cocktail, which we'll talk about why that name. And it's called Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blanchet. And it is a $4.99 rental on Amazon Prime and producer and I loved it. Really? Loved it. We watched it together and it was so good. Mm. And Jodie Foster narrates it. Okay. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Here okay. we go. <laughs> Bringing out the big guns. <laughs> really? They did. They went in hard for this one. So Alice was born July 1st, 1873. Mm. Her father, Emile Guy, was a bookstore and publishing company owner. And her mother, Marie, and her father and four older siblings, I think four, may have been three, it was kind of confusing the way it was written. Had this company in Santiago, Chile. But, Chile? But they were French. Okay. But they were running the company in Chile. Interesting. But in 1872-73, there's this devastating smallpox epidemic in Chile. And I mean, who can relate? <laughs> so 
Emile and Marie Guy brought their children to Paris, back to their home, where they had Alice. And in Alice's autobiography, she calls this her mother's attempt to make sure one of her children was French. Oh, my God. (laughs) Please, dear God. Soon after her birth, her father returned to Chile, and then her mother went after him a couple months later, leaving her with her grandmother in Switzerland. So she's being raised in Switzerland by her grandmother with parents that live in Chile. Wow. Yeah. That is a lot. That's it a is lot. a lot. But then at the age of three or four, Marie's mom pops back into Europe. Or sorry, Alice. Marie's mom. Alice's mom, Marie, pops back into Europe and takes Alice with her to South America. Okay. So she's born there. She went to Europe and now she's going back. No, she's born in France. Oh, she's born in France. Left in Switzerland with her grandmother. Goes to Chile. Goes to Chile. By four years old. Got it, got it, got it. (laughs) This girl, world traveler. So funny because she probably doesn't remember any of it. Not at all. (laughs) At six, Alice is taken back to France by her father to attend a convent school where her sisters were already attending. So they go to a nice convent school. And it's worth noting that she could speak French and Spanish and later in life has to end up conversing in German and English, but really liked French the best. Yeah. Languages did not come naturally to her. You know how like some Ugh. people it's like, oh, and they spoke this and they spoke this. So yeah. she really liked speaking in French and always kind of had to stretch herself to do something else. So on January 5th. 1891 tragedy strikes Alice's family when her father passes away. Her sisters had already moved out of the house and started families. And I believe she had a brother who had kind of done the same. This left Alice and her mother alone. So Alice is like, okay, well I'll just go and train as like a typist. She's like a teen, early twenties. And stenography was like the new job. Oh my gosh. Have you ever looked up videos of stenographers? They're so good. Especially the ones where their hands like bounce on the keys. Like I went on. Why? Every goddamn time. John Sarbanes. John Sarbanes. Sarbanes. I will say I didn't. I wouldn't have gotten to India if it wasn't for him. Listen, um, that's why he's still a fucking senator after all Sarbanes. these years. Um, <laughs> but uh, goddamn, what was I going to say? What did you just? Stenographers. Yes, I went on a really deep rabbit hole one night and seeing how their keyboards work because it's insane. So like they type everything super quickly because it's a code. And then they have to go in and like decipher their code and translate it. I've never seen someone sneeze so many times in a row. Are you okay? I almost died. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. Yeah. It is weird that they do the code and then they decode it. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Yeah. I love it. So if anyone wants to do that, go look it up because it's wild. Is this on YouTube? And they need. Yeah. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. Like it's like a 60 minutes thing. Sounds like a perfect rabbit it. hole. Um, and uh, People need stenographers, so if anybody out there wants to do it, it's a good thing to get into. Is this still a career? Is this a yes. thing? I did not know that. They need stenographers more than ever. But even though everything is audio recorded and, like, obviously all the courtrooms are, like, you know, microphoned and everything and recorded, mm. sometimes if people are, like, mumbling or something, it won't come through on the recording oh damn so they need they tried to get rid of stenographers but too many cases were thrown out because of poor recording systems perfect good now we know get on that career path girl everybody or boy all of you or non-binary person not cisgender anybody 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 see a stenographer (laughs) today just like alice (laughs) gibbon at baskets community college um 
okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> she had always, like she says, as a kid, been interested in acting, but her father would have rather her died, which we've talked about <laughs> actors on this show before. It's like when acting was considered like... Um, like a literal, like, sex work. Right, you're like, a sex you're, worker. You're, in, you're a sex worker. Yeah. Um. So... This is a new field at the time, and it was a nice upper middle class job for a woman. It was a leading profession where women could really break through into the field of office work. Mm -hmm. So she's using this to support herself and her widowed mother. Her first stenography job was for a varnish factory. I don't know how. Don't ask me. <laughs> I don't know what she was stenographing. One varnish came in today. What is that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what she was doing, but she was stenographing it. Okay. And um, then she goes for this interview for a photography business. The owner of the business wasn't in at the time, so she had to interview for a younger man in the business. And in her interview, the gentleman says, you're young. And she said, sir, it will pass. <laughs> I'm going to get older. Calm oh, down. Oh, my gosh. Calm down. So she was hired as a secretary for this company that manufactured cameras and photography supplies. The company was bought that same year by Gustave Eiffel, Joseph Velo, Alfred Beisner, and Leon Gamont, which that's the name you need to remember. Leon, Leon Gamont. Leon he was Gamont. the young man that interviewed her. I love it. Okay. These guys are big time. They're like engineers, astrophysicists, astronomers. They're like mm-hmm. fancy, fancy boys. Mm-hmm. Eiffel was the president of the company, and Gamont was 30 years his junior. And he was the manager, but the studio was named after Gamont because Eiffel was in the middle of a big scandal regarding the Panama Canal. Uh, I thought you were going to say Eiffel Tower. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you would think it is France. But you really wanted to put two giant globes at the bottom. They're like, we can't. <laughs> no. Yeah. This is the pa- this is a Pan- Panama Canal okay. situation. <laughs> so <laughs> the camera producing company became like a major force in the brand new motion picture industry in France. Alice at the time is a secretary, but as secretaries do, she starts becoming familiar with the clients, with marketing, how to troubleshoot for the companies, like, you know, the people coming to buy stuff, you know, the customers. Mm. And she's also meeting a handful of famous pioneers in the film industry. Salvador Dali. I'm just kidding. He's Not at all. <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> so what's interesting about film at this time is everybody could capture images and moving pictures, but they hadn't figured out how to project them yet. So Ooh. this is like a race to projection. And Gamont got invited to a surprise event, and he asked his 22-year-old secretary to come with him to take notes. Turns out, on March 22nd, 1895, the Lumiere brothers demonstrated to a select crowd that they had figured out how to project mm. film, and Alice was one of the people <gasps> sitting it. in that crowd, 22 years oh, old. Oh, my gosh. Saw just, the first projection ever. Oh, my gosh. Ever. I hope that she arrived, and she's like, ooh, I forgot my stenography machine. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Gamont. <laughs> That's yeah. That's I'll what just did. have to simply enjoy myself. I'll have to sit here and watch <laughs> as history is being made. That's insane. I love that she was there. It's very cool. So the film projected was one of these very early films called like 
workers leaving the factory and they just won't <laughs> just film anything walking <laughs> because people probably literally thought that it was like the devil like they were like what Ooh. is happening yeah and she's watching and she's like okay so they took videos of this moving stuff it's like waves and the sky and like people walking and alice is just so bored she's <laughs> like oh my god i know this is like the first time i've ever seen this ever and anybody in human history has ever seen it but like i'm i'm tired of this i feel like these demonstration films are not good enough and I would like to add a fictional element to the storytelling. She'd be so bored with Lillian Gilbreth. She's like, what are you even doing? Exactly. <laughs> Can you please tell me why Pass you're so worried? Wrench? What? <laughs> are you so worried about the kitchen height counter? So she goes to Gamont and she says, hey, listen, I know we now know how to do this. So like, are you cool if I like use your equipment to make some films? And he's like, this is not really work for a young female secretary. But if you're getting your job done, then you can do it during your lunch break. You can use all of our supplies and make movies, whatever the hell you want to do. Films. They're not even called movies at that point. Just moving pictures. So the first thing she makes is called The Cabbage Fairy, obviously in French. And it is about a minute and a half long. And it's telling this fictional story about this woman. She's corseted. She's got flowers on her. And she's picking these live babies (laughs) out of of cabbage plants and, like, laying them on the ground. Were they real babies? They're real damn babies, Katie. Where did she get the babies? I don't know where she got the babies. Alice! (laughs) But the film is from 1896. Oh, my God. Alice. The first <gasps> film director of all time. Ever! Oh, my <laughs> God! Ever. She directed the first fictional film of all time. And it was Cabbage Baby. <laughs> it was Cabbage Baby. <laughs> <laughs> Which means she also kind of invented the Cabbage Patch dolls. She very did. I mean, come on. She very much did. That's insane. She was on the pulse. On the pulse. She was, she was ready for she it. She was like, everybody loves babies and cabbage and film. And it was groundbreaking. And people loved it. People were like, that secretary who works for you, like, made this? And now to be clear, they did, like, remake this movie a couple times because it was so famous. Once in 1900 and once in 1902. And we've never found the original one. Oh, so people fight about it and they'll be like, oh, she wasn't the first director. She's the first female director because we can't find the original one. However, <laughs> a July newspaper from 1896 mentions the film and some details that could not have oh, been faked. my Meaning God. that the actual footage existed and had been seen. So she's the first filmmaker ever. Ever. In all of history. That wasn't like men walking from a factory. <laughs> That's <laughs> insane. First like narrative film is what they call it. Something with a story. So um, Alice decides that a film is not just something you take on your cell phone like we see today. It is a set, a costume, acting, scripts, props. She had vision and she's like, I'm going to make them. Mm-hmm. Starts with one minute, then two minutes, then three, then longer. And people like them. These people in the beginning were like the punk rock of the film industry. They're making their own rules. They're doing what they want. They're figuring out what works. I saw an interview. Well, on the documentary, 
Andy Samberg is interviewed. Yeah. And uh, he and he's only in like one clip and we love him. We love I'm him. I'm obsessed with Andy Samberg. He's so cute to me. He goes, I'm just watching some of her clips and realizing like it's sketch comedy. She's doing <gasps> SNL. Like she's making these minute long funny clips to like put out there. Like she's ahead of the game. Oh on this. my God. She's super cool. She's like, yeah, wouldn't it be so funny if I dressed up like a fairy and picked a bunch of babies out of a cabbage patch? Exactly. That was comedy. It was comedy. <laughs> it was comedy. And she keeps going. Um, and then another uh, like film professor compared it to YouTube. They said the rawness Ooh. of these videos are just like you went out back and you thought like, what can I make right here and film it for a minute? So she's also the first YouTube influencer. Yeah, really she is. <laughs> so Gamont sees her doing this with her little Cabbage Fairy film. And he's like, I like it. And I'm going to make you the head of production for my entire company. <laughs> this is the exact opposite trajectory I thought she had. No, it's incredible. Oh, my God. So I'm going to make you head of production. You're the head of production for my whole company. So that makes her the first narrative film maker executive <laughs> And the only female director in the world for the first 10 years of her career. For the, also, for like, for the first couple years of film. Film ever. Just film ever. I, I hate that we started off with a woman at the helm and they're like, but nobody else. Like, what? It's very weird. <laughs> so she's incorporating strategies that no one else has seen before. She's doing a thing called hand-tinted color. Yeah. She went back and painted tinted the film so that it would be colored you can see these online she has tinted it she's also doing synchronized sound where she records the sound ahead of time and plays it with the film while they're (gasps) lip syncing this is this is during before talkies she's putting sound on videos oh my god can i ask you a question yeah does she do the one where it's like the french dancer and she has like the just like the butterfly dance thing with the pretty yeah. skirt mm-hmm. like you can see the colors yeah, on yeah, the yeah. skirt yeah <gasps> she did that she's hand tinted that yeah what it's the one where it's like the pink and green yes outfit. and it like changes yes. oh my gosh that's what she did <gasps> And to be fair, Thomas Edison was also using synchronized sound, but he would have the actors like scream so they're <laughs> recording while they're acting. Um, and she was not down for that. She wanted her actors to be natural. She be natural, be baby. Natural. Come on. <laughs> um, so obviously, many people see her as a pioneer in the music video and musical industry. Her Early films share characteristics and themes with other popular studios because back then you couldn't really own a script. So people created something and then other people ripped it off and you couldn't prove that they ripped it off. Just everybody made the same sketch and it didn't matter. Like you made it, then they made it and everybody watched it. Right. So she ends up doing like this investigation of scripts in her studio and like dusting them for fingerprints like you could actually do that back then. And then finding out that the night custodian is like stealing scripts <gasps> from her drawer. Oh, my God. She's like the, the regular Sherlock Holmes here. Mm. So she explored dance and travel films and music and color and sound. And in 1906, she decides I want to do a big budget production on the passion of the life of Christ. What? She's Mel Gibson. What? She's pre-Mel Gibson, my girl. So she finds this illustrated Bible and she films 25 episodes 
about like the life of Christ. And she ended up making Jesus look like he was ascending. She used special effects like to make him look like he's floating. She used double exposure. She runs film backwards. So you can like see this like back effect. And it is just like an incredible film about Jesus, which is like really hard to do because Christians hate anything. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) So during all this, she's in charge of hiring and firing the film crew and working underneath of her. She decides I'm going to hire a cameraman. I'm going to make a trap door in the studio. I'm going to buy scripts. I'm going to hire set designers. Her movies start to focus on all types of things like parenthood, abuse, seduction. She uses children in her movies. She featured a pregnant woman having cravings and then she like <gasps> steals absinthe from a man. It's really funny. Ah! She like goes in and she's like having cravings for all these things like a pregnant woman yeah. on film which is like not something people did. They didn't even do it with Lucille Ball. No. <laughs> and then what? there's one and, and this is France to be fair. True, true, true. true. Uh, they're much more open. There's this one sketch where this maid is like licking stamps and like putting them on envelopes and this man in the background's getting like hot and heavy because the maid <laughs> is like licking stuff and then he comes up and tries to kiss her and gets stuck to her <gasps> face and it's like the funniest oh my god thing. it would like appear on the SNL like, it would it's very funny my gosh she's the three stooges she really is um, and then she also starts to notice sexism. So she made these really funny movies where the women dress like women and the men dress like men. But then the girls in their big fancy dresses would sit at tables and smoke cigars while <laughs> the men were walking around sweeping the house and like doing women things. It's really funny. I love that. And and it's like people watch them and were like rolling. They thought that she was extraordinary. And she also gets this like four year old girl to stop these two thieves in one film, like Home Alone style. <gasps> like this little girl is like thwarting these two thieves. Katie, everything is Alice Guy Blanche. <laughs> I mean, she's literally winning the world. So I just, there's even like a moment in a book that, or a quote from Alfred Hitchcock where he's mentioning all these people that inspired him. And he goes, and even the work of director Guy Blanche. <gasps> But never said Alice, but I don't, he okay, knew, it probably other people didn't know yet who she was. Okay. And it probably wasn't meant to be like, you won't know whether she's a woman or a man. No, he's he probably just like, names. yeah, he's probably just like, yeah, like this director, this director, and this director. Like I'm going to reference all their last names. Yeah, like Guy Blanchet. He was Guy like Blanchet? this, this person, this director inspired me in my films. That's amazing. She's very cool. So. And that was one place we found her name in history. We had to search really hard. (laughs) At the time, obviously, she's a secretary, but her work ended up changing their company and the film industry forever. But she met a man named Herbert Blanchet. Alice Guy met a man named Herbert Blanchet. And um, he also worked for the company, and they were sent to Germany together to troubleshoot cameras for customers because they would send cameras and then people would be like my camera broke and they didn't have like people to call back then there's no like calling in and getting help so she was going around traveling and helping people with their cameras so um alice gee marries him he is 10 years her junior and he was a production manager and he was assigned to go to the united states so she has to resign from her position at gamont And they're like, we're super sad to lose you. You're breaking our hearts. Please don't leave. But together they go to Cleveland and um, they are running the sector of Gamont's film now in the United States. 
when she gets to the United States, she trains this young actress to direct, making that woman the first American ah, director of so all cool. time, first female American director. And early in 1908, the couple ends up going from um, Cleveland to New York City, where Alice gives birth to her daughter, <gasps> Simone. Simone, I love that name. And so cool. And Simone, as of 2018, was still alive. Really? Mm-hmm. And soon after being in the United States, Alice decides she wants to produce her own films. So she starts her own business called the Solax Company. It's the largest pre-Hollywood studio in America. I love that she's pre-Hollywood. She started she's like, her I don't even own have, business. I don't even have time for all of that. Hollywood wasn't a thing yet. She said in a letter, I'm a woman of activity. I still want to work. If I do something, will you join me? And she's like getting people to join <laughs> her film business. She rents a studio in Flushing, New Jersey. She founded Solax. Solax. She's pumping out three productions a week. She hired a guy with a military background so she would get ships and guns and cavalry and like the whole works. So she's also like doing like she's also doing what people do now of like, oh, I'm going to hire someone who knows actually about war to like. She's hiring consultants. Oh, yeah. Specific consultants for the film she wants to make. She is an incredible person. So with these production facilities in Flushing, New York, she worked as an artistic artistic director on many releases and made her husband the president of the business so she could focus on directing. Just two years later, she's pregnant again with her son and decide they want to move their studio to Fort Lee, New Jersey, which we don't understand now, but Fort Lee was the first Hollywood. Really? In New Jersey? Yeah. And we'll talk about why it's not in a minute. But she spends $100,000 to make a new facility there. And her daughter says, yeah, my mom was always away from home. We were always with governesses. We just didn't know any different. It's just what it was. My mom worked. My dad worked. And we stayed at home. They're like also like the first Hollywood couple. Yeah. They absolutely are. And it ends that way. Oh, no. (laughs) It, It ends very Hollywood. Oh, no. So many early film industries were based in Fort Lee. On 19, in 1913, Guy Blanchet directed The Thief. So Alice directs a movie called The Thief, which is the first script sold by William Moulton Marston, who was the creator of Wonder Woman. <gasps> no. So she directed a movie of his first script ever. <laughs> then she's hiring actors and calling them the Solax players. Like you're an mm. actor, but you're an actor for me. And she's making movies about labor unionizing, anti-Semitism, and immigration to the United States because wait, co- anti-Semitism like it's bad. Yeah, okay, good, because good, good. she's coming to the United States as like someone from France, and she can't speak good English. And like I said, she's not great with languages, so like she's seeing this immigration problem, and she doesn't love it. Yeah, she also starts to include live animals and exotic animals in her Ooh. movies, which is something other people did not do. She also created the first film with an entire African-American cast. No. Yes. What? It's not perfect in black imagery, obviously, but it's something that Americans couldn't understand. And as a French person, she was like, I don't get why they don't just want black people to be actors. So it's of its time. Right. But it's definitely like an entire black cast in a movie that she directed and produced. That's incredible. And she asked white people to be in it, but they turned it down. Oh, my God. 
they were like, I don't want to be like tinted with the idea of I acted with a black actor. Cause she was asking white people to be like coupled with a black person in the movie. Well, and I'm sure too that like, I mean, film is obviously very new. So it's also like, well, it wouldn't happen on stage. So like, why would it happen on, in, on camera? Yeah. Why would we do Like, yeah. Why would we do this? Like, that's Mm -hmm. not appropriate. Like, yeah. So it's a, it's a feature that's like studied in black filmography now because like she made it and it was the first one. That's incredible. Then she makes a film for Planned Parenthood. (laughs) What? Which was like a client of hers. Now the, film never gets fully made for margaret sanger but it's like a promotional video for planned parenthood she's like on so many cross sections here i can't even focus on it so like i said fort lee new jersey was the hollywood pre-1920s she her studio is on a street with paramount universal studios and fox solax theater is like with these people all on the same street. She's making fifty to sixty thousand dollars annually as a woman in the United States. Okay, and that is like then money. That's I can't even imagine what that is now money. She's making so much. And she's making that money because she's also training people to edit films. She's staying up all night and cutting her own films and putting in title slides. Like she knows what she's doing. There's a big sign on her studio wall in New Jersey that everybody references that talks about her that says be natural as a reminder to her actors that you're not supposed to pose everybody back then if you've seen 1920s films they're very oh my cozy and they overdo yes. it because they're like silent films and she wanted to film real people doing real things i i love that because that is the stereotype of like Oh, in a silent film, everybody's so melodramatic because, like, obviously it's just like, I'm sad. And I love that she is just saying, like, no, 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 people don't want to see that. <laughs> they want to see real. Because real, uh, people forget that real translates. So well it does. So well, even better than put on. Like, mm-hmm. mm, okay. And I would heavily suggest the... um documentary be natural because you get to see clips of all the movies i'm referencing and they're so very good they will make you laugh out loud they're so you said it's on amazon it's on amazon for like four dollars okay um so while her husband worked for her he also decides he's going to open his own film studio because of course nobody likes it when their wife does things and he calls it blanche features which is so dumb but with world war one like coming and ending there's so much going on with economics and thomas edison who we know and love <laughs> i did not expect him to come into this story Here at all he is thomas edison who's making movies at the time creates a trust and in order to create movies in fort lee new jersey you have to pay into the trust i've heard i think i've heard about it's this an eight like industry trust so yeah. like paramount and universal studios and like fox are all like oh we don't want to do that so they all pick up and go to the other side of the country which is how hollywood begins because so of like, thomas edison they're like, we need to get away being from a thomas dick edison. i we could have had hollywood man. right next door if it wasn't for thomas edison god the east coast could have been everything <laughs> i mean we really we really would have been the talk of the town the talk <laughs> <laughs> uh i mm, okay isn't that wild that's insane the famous names coming into this story are blowing me 
<laughs> I, okay, because I feel like I've kind of been like, fuck you, Thomas Edison, for a while now <laughs> in my life. And now I'm like, really, fuck you. And now here we are. He's like, everybody wants my Nickelodeons. Let's, like, put a, n- let's put a shadow. Up. Let's put a full shadow okay. over the film industry, <laughs> <laughs> said Thomas. Um, yeah, so everybody moves to California to get away from him. Also, poor New Jersey. They could have really been something. They really could have been. And now they're the armpit I'm of America. I'm just kidding. You're everything, New Jersey. We love you. You're great. You have You've got this Oh, you went. (laughs) I went Snooky. It's fine. (laughs) So, Sopranos. I know you could have been something. (laughs) Cut to black. (laughs) That was a good joke. It was a good joke. So, her husband wanted to go uh, to Hollywood. So, Herbert leaves his wife and child to pursue a career in Hollywood. And uh, he becomes quite the little cheater. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, Alice almost dies from influenza in 1919 in oh the Spanish God. flu. <laughs> it all comes full circle. Um, but he's like. But she oh, survives. She does survive. And, and she he's is like, a survivor. She survives for past her prime (laughs) so he's like why don't you like join me in hollywood you almost died i'm sad about that (laughs) so like she comes with her babies but they don't live together and alice and her husband end up divorcing several years later even though they're partners in hollywood they're like doing film but this is very desi arnaz i was just gonna say this sounds so desi and lucy they're they're partners and they're like working together but they're definitely divorced so in october 1919 Alice makes her final film. Her studio has this big fire and she loses everything and she has to file for bankruptcy and like auction off her stuff. And after 1920, we never hear from Alice in the film industry again. No, She moves back to France and, you know, that's not the end of her story. She goes to France and doesn't make films. Pre-1920, all these women are listed on film creds, and it was no big deal made about it. And that's because the film industry was budding, and no one cared if women were involved. But as soon as big business realized they could make money, the industry came through the front door, and women were pushed out the back. What the fuck? France did not want to hire her. People did not want a white-haired woman working in the film industry, and... um. She was moved past when she left for America. There's this article in France talking about women that used to be in the industry. And one fleeting line says, oh, and of course, there was Alice Blanchet. But we haven't heard from her in years. The Gamont historical papers didn't even mention her. And she was the head of production for the first decade that that it existed in the late 1940s. Alice decides, okay, it's 20 years since I came back to France. I'm going to write my autobiography. Thank God. Seriously. She searches for a publisher. No one's interested. The publishing of these tales of a white-haired woman in the film industry, they're like, no way. So instead, she goes around giving lectures at high schools. And nobody wants to listen to her. Alice becomes really concerned in the whole second half of her life about the absence of her historical records in filmmaking. She constantly is sending communication to newspapers and authors saying, you miss, you know, attributed this film to someone else. I made that film. And it was like the man working under her that got the credit for the film. And she 
decided to create a lengthy list of her films as she remembered them. She would write them down with the hopes of being able to assume creative ownership of them one day. She spent a great deal of time in the last years of her life traveling the world looking for the originals of her work so she could prove she did it. Her daughter even told her to stop searching and give up. She was like, Mom, you're important to us. You don't have to be important to film history. As she's searching and contacting people, some film industries in France start to throw her a bone. In 1953, she's actually given a Legion of Honor, which is the highest non-military award in France. Yeah. So it is a big deal. And in 1957, she's honored at this like cinema award where she ends up like contacting all the attendees to help her look for her films afterwards. She's like, can you please help me find these? Alice never remarries. She... <sighs> I know. I, I just, I also, like, it's hard to imagine a world without everything on a cloud. I know. And how upsetting that is because... You can never see something you did ever again. Like, for example, you just had some of your students, they lost their house in a fire this week, the week before Christmas. Right. And uh, they lost everything in it. And you specifically mentioned, like, in all of their photos... And it's like, I had that thought of like, yeah, but thankfully, other than like historic photos, like they're all online now. So like they yeah. can reprint them. They can. If her work is lost, it is lost. It's lost, lost. We don't like there's no way to get it back. The way I like to think about it is I like to try when I think about like a fire or something like that. I think about the one thing in each room I couldn't replace. Yeah. Like what's the Christmas ornament that I look forward to hanging up every year? Yeah. What's the this? What's the that? And it's like, oh, my God, like there's so much stuff I can't replace here. And yeah. that's what she's dealing with in her head. Alice is like, I, I can never get this back. Well, and also, like, I can't even prove that I did it. Like, people just think I'm a liar. They, and it's like... <laughs> and it gets worse. People are really mean to her oh my God. in the end of her life. Um, so Alice never remarries. She lives with her daughter in France for a bit. And then she lives with her daughter in New Jersey. And she dies at the age of 94 in a nursing home in the United States, still working endlessly to get people to believe what she did for oh the movie God. industry. Her memoir, Autobiography, ends up being published eight years after her death. It was published in first in France and then translated into English by her daughter and her daughter-in-law. Here's the kicker. Because her films hadn't been found, people still didn't believe her autobiography, even though she's dead. There's this interview with a lot of male filmmakers in the 1970s where they go, it's all hearsay. Her That's one. Her films are not good. That's why they didn't write about it. She's exaggerating her own importance. She didn't make that one. No one's ever seen that. She could have never done that with the tools that she had at the time, is what these people are saying. The women in this interview, the same time period, are going, no, you're ignoring her because she's a woman. A woman. <laughs> you're ignoring her. A women woman. <laughs> They're ignoring her. And, and like, they're upset because they're like, I think she probably did it. Because there right. are women in the 70s that are like, no, 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 she probably did. Let's read more into it. Let's find out about it. So filmmakers start to search and create documentaries and books about her life, thinking if we can find something, anything, any original copy at all, that it'll be fine. So first comes a Canadian filmmaker who makes a movie called The Lost Garden, The Life and Cinema of Alice Guy Blanchett. 
Guy Blanchy. <laughs> Blanchy. And that won an award for being a documentary. There were books written about her in 1993, 1996, 2002, and they're all published about her. She was the first woman to manage a studio. And like typically that's attributed to Lois Weber, who good on her. She's a wonderful woman, but her stuff has to be somewhere is what people are saying. If these videos happen, they have to be somewhere. So in 2018, the documentary called Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blanchet is narrated by Jodie Foster and was released. Because of this documentary, more people start looking and her films were found, <gasps> restored, oh my God. and preserved. I have chills. It was found that many of her movies had been stored in the MoMA and the National Archives. And they just didn't know. They didn't know. You see, before there weren't enough films to prove that she had done anything she said. But now we know. So in 2019, she was included in the New York Times series Overlooked No More. For so long, people ignored her achievements and pretended that they were not written about because they were blown out of proportion. She started getting posthumous awards and being put in director's guilds and put in textbooks and in film institutions. And the newest filmmakers do know who she is and are going to graduate with degrees talking about her. What we know is that in the early 1900s, we wrote an incomplete history of the world, and we've been taking generations to take that history back. If we just keep teaching that people like Alice Gee did not exist, that will be a problem. When they found Alice's collection, it did not only fill the gaps in history, but it filled the gaps in film history. People said, oh, that's where we learned that. Aha! That's the missing link between these two techniques. So from 1896 to 1920, she directed, produced, and wrote over a thousand films. We have found more than 150 of them, and 22 of them were full-length films. And now, no one can say that she didn't do it. And that is Alice Guy Blanchy's story. I am literally blown away. Can you freaking believe that no no i cannot (laughs) i can't believe it 2018 they just found all this woman's material and are like oh my god we've been saying she didn't do it for years but she did i also can't imagine just being her later like i i so a a thing about me is that i hate storylines when like you know that the person is telling the truth and nobody believes them it is the most frustrating thing to watch it's literally harry potter five yeah and like that drives me completely insane i mean i'm glad that she's getting recognition now it sucks that it wasn't during her life but it sucks that it wasn't during her life like And I mean, one of the really cool things is like I cannot stress more. Please buy the documentary. Be natural. I like, will. It's four ninety nine. It's so good. There's like this film footage of her where like she like is walking out onto the stage, and there's all these actors and all these people around her, and she's just like directing them, and then bends over to look into the camera. Like you can tell she's the director, and right? You can like watch her being in charge of an entire set, and it's so frustrating that she had to live the last. 40 years of her life telling people, no, I did. I did do it. And everybody being like, yeah, no, you didn't. But you know what? Props to her for never being like, 
okay, I fucking, you know what I'm saying? I give up. And like, listen, like if she would have listened to her daughter and her daughter was like, oh my gosh, just give up. And she's like, no, I will not. Like I did this. And what's so cute is after she dies, like her daughter's a big part of the documentary of making sure her mom's shit is found. Oh my God. That's incredible. It's so cool. The whole thing is cool. It just, it's, it's such a search and find. And it just makes me. I'm blown away. about the other cool women that Because I literally was like. I was like, all right, we're going to do these two women. And like, I don't know if there's really that much on them. So like. <laughs> She's a queen. Queens. Okay. So now we have the honor and privilege of talking about these two women in conversation together. And a little segment we like to call just the two of us. Okay. Female artists. Female artists. I wrote like they both basically said i'm bored with what you're doing it needs to be more creative fix it fix it like because honestly i was thinking about the relation between those those films of just people working and you're like yes people work and then the memorials that existed of like yes men rode on horses into battle but it's like that's not honoring what actually ha- like what people it's want the, to it's see not the spirit it's of not it. the spirit of it and like the spirit of film is like creativity and just interesting things like yes they're going to work but why are they going to work where do they work what's the story behind what's going on here it's like that's the interesting part and it's like yes here's a war memorial but like who was actually there it wasn't just this one guy right in a general's hat like who was there and i love that that you said that maya had this like rich ancestral history that was ignored and it's like alice is an example of american history that's just ignored yeah well and it's so interesting how opposite those two things are because like maya's history family history was ignored because it was painful and her parents were like i that was then I don't want to fucking talk about it. You're American. You work at McDonald's. That's what we know. But like with Alice, it was like, no, we just don't want to talk about you because you're inconvenient to the story we're telling now where men are controlling the world. It's like, <laughs> it's like when you said they would have never picked Maya's design if they knew it was a 20-something Asian-American yeah. female. It's like the fact that the design is hers makes it unbelievable, makes it unwantable, which is disgusting. Yes. And it's it unfair. Does. Well, and that's the beauty of anonymity in these both of these stories is like for Maya, it was like her. She is project 1026, right? That's who she was. And nobody put a name or a race or a face to it. It was just like, yeah, project 1026. And for Alice, it was like, that's just film. That's this weird thing. We don't know what it is yet. So like, I don't care what you do with it because Mm. the thing is, if there's not money behind it, (laughs) my microphone went away um if there's not money behind it initially then people don't care right because you know which one they didn't lose the jesus one and you know what they did say that the guy working under her made it exactly well and also i can't we can't ignore the age thing too like when you said like alice is going in this meeting and the guy goes you're young 
I was like, that's exactly what people were, were saying to Maya. It was like, what do you mean? You're young. Like, what What do you know? As and then if, later on, they were like, you're too old. We yes. A white-haired woman working here. What age do you have to be what, to be yeah. a woman? What age is right? Come on. Because it's like, I because obviously we talk about sexism a lot because this is a female-centric podcast. But like, ageism is such a big factor in sexism and racism and all of it because basically everyone is telling you that whatever age you are isn't the right age you're too old you're too young like you don't know what you're talking about you're senile like everyone is trying to tell you like because because I feel like this whole thing is just a big fucking gaslight it's well, like because it's also <laughs> like if you have a young man coming out of Yale it's not that he's too young it's that he's up and coming oh my god yes and then if you have an older man in the film industry versus an older woman he's not he's past his and prime. he's he's experienced oh you're not past your prime you're experienced it's different verbiage that we use for men versus women based on age and it isn't fair and it's you're so not right. right you you are so correct um and the thing is that i love about these women is that even though like they were young and like were older at certain times like they are you said a woman of activity. And I <laughs> loved that phrase you used because I feel like that describes both of them. Honestly, like I feel like Alice was just doing things all the time and she was mm. always on the cutting edge. And then you have Maya who she's a woman of activity, but she is frankly a slower paced. And I think that we don't appreciate a slower pace of activity because we're like, oh, you're not being productive enough. And she's like, no, no, no. Like, I'm still creating. She's like, this is just going to take some time. You know what I'm saying? I need to feel it. Yeah. She's like, I need to feel it. And uh, I think that we also have um, more of a respect for things that are done quickly. But I think that I think that's also gendered. You oh, know, yeah. it's like I think people can disrespect Alice's stuff because they're like, oh, she couldn't have made that many films in that short a time. It's just impossible. You know, and then you look at Maya's stuff and you're like, okay, she did one thing. And you're like, well, actually, she did a lot of stuff. But like, you're just not paying attention because she creates, you know, one really awesome big thing like every couple of years. Like, and they also both they both had this vision um, and they both were like unwilling to compromise on their vision of what things should look like. And it's funny because like Maya had her vision. She put it out there and then she's like, and you know what? My personal life is for me and this is all you need to know. Whereas Alice is like, this is my vision. I put it out there. Nobody will credit it with me. So I'm going to write my autobiography and shop it to everyone. Nobody would buy it. She's so there's interviews with her. Like nobody cares. Like in the 1960s, she's like, nobody's going to buy it. Oh she's like, what a shame to end your life like that. You don't deserve. She did not deserve that. Yeah. No, she didn't. Well, and that's the problem is like you have Maya who like literally like even though they did not include her name in the dedication. No, they can't. You cannot deny the fact that she did it. Right. And it's almost like that thing of like, you know, like that saying of like, oh, Pixar didn't happen. It's like. Alice is like, no, I, I, I did it, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like the thing of like, even if you had never like taken pictures of you, like at the start line, at the finish line, Allie, you ran a fucking marathon, right. which is impressive and insane. I don't know how you did it, but like, it was terrible. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and I would have really seen you if that homeless guy hadn't been yelling next to me. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, it but is you know incredible. what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, it's that horrible thing of like, again, like women just need that like extra proof of like, I did it. And like, you won't believe me. But like, isn't it also tampered expectations? Like Maya mm. the whole time was like, it's never going to get built. Yeah. It's not going to happen. I made it. It's not going to happen. So it's fine. And well, Alice she- is like, no, I actually did it. It's yeah. there. Well, because Maya lived in the world that people created because of women like Alice. Alice exactly. People are like, perfect. that's exactly the outcome of when you keep saying that women didn't do things and that's not true. And they're lying. Then you have people like Maya being like, that's never going to happen for me because things like it's just like that it never happened like it's too good to be true mm-hmm. and for, thankfully Alice didn't have to live in that world because she was creating something entirely new mm-hmm. and like I'm just so grateful that we can give her credit now and I'm grateful that we can give Maya credit for her vision and respect and like all that stuff and like I don't know I just I don't know. And I and I love that her thing was be natural because she was like, I feel like they both were like, pay attention to the people. Alice was like, no, no, no. Don't pay attention to the big emotion on screen. She's like, pay attention to the people who are on screen. They're acting. They're acting. And that's exactly because you don't want to see actors on screen. You want to see people. You want to see people who you believe are people. And that's what Maya did in her memorial she was like don't see the big event the big heroes the big heroes see everyone who existed be natural see the natural i just i don't know perfect perfect i love it are you ready to toast i'm so ready to toast what a great i know pairing very cool pairing we didn't plan this surprise surprise we We say this every week but we really didn't yeah (laughs) Um, Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I want to toast those who've passed before Mm. being recognized. I think that it's hard when you do something really, really cool and no one cares. Because also I do think being a common person is super beautiful. And that I think that people should not be ashamed of like a normal, typical life. But the thing is, Alice didn't have a normal, typical Mm. life. And she died thinking that no one would ever know that. And she never got to see her films again. And that's so desperately sad. But, you know, the ending for her daughter, who's still alive, is really, really cool. And she got to see the rise of her mother. So just for Mm. people who are gone too soon. Cheers. cheers. Even though she was 94, it was too soon. (laughs) What do you got? Also, our toasts pair so well together. Because I am toasting women who make us remember. (laughs) I want to toast women who have, I mean, because here's the thing. Women have always been the knowledge keepers. They have been the storytellers. I mean, they don't call it an old wives tale for nothing. (laughs) Women are the continuers of culture. And I think it's very fitting that we have Maya at the helm of our efforts to remember our national past, the good, the bad, the ugly, just everything. She's like, no, we need to remember it all. We need to remember our veterans. We need to remember our soldiers who passed. And we need to remember our fucking birds that have also passed because of our actions. Like Our great birds. Just women who 
not even help us remember, just make us remember. Mm. Mm. Cheers. Cheers. All right, Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? This so, Christmas week. This Christmas week. <laughs> I watched a really depressing show. <laughs> um, so I found this like show that just came out like last Wednesday called The Ripper. And I thought it was going to be about Jack the Ripper. And it was not. Oh, OK. So I started and it's a documentary about like killings in the 1980s in England and the serial killer ends up being called the Ripper <gasps> because it is so likened to what happened back in the day. Oh my gosh. What is his name? I can't remember. Cause oh I'm my only gosh. Like three episodes. Yes. In. Allie. I, I know, know it. who's done it's it David yet. Sutcliffe, right? Oh, I have no idea. <gasps> oh, you don't know yet. Okay. Okay. Yes. I know that guy and he's fucking insane. Well, you would love this documentary. It's only fi- it's a mini series. Okay. It's only like five episodes. It's called the Ripper. It came out literally yesterday. <gasps> okay. So I know exactly who this documentary is about. And it's so infuriating because yeah. all the clues are pointing in the whole time. And yeah. the police were like, mm, probably not him. <gasps> I know. Yes. That guy's insane. It's really good. So everybody watch okay, it. Okay. I'm going to watch in, it. If you're into a killer, mm, which okay. everybody is because we love true crime. We do. <laughs> <laughs> who do you have before our little Patreon clip? Man, you know what? I am going to recommend Tony Bennett's Christmas album. <laughs> It's good. It's, it's very classic. good. It's very good. I it's jazzy. It's fun. It's nice. I mean, you know that I'm a classic Bing Crosby girl. You are. I love a Bing Crosby Christmas album. <laughs> and the because I'm also gonna recommend that. Because let me tell you <laughs> just two two recommendations. <laughs> two Christmas albums. His song Christmas in Killarney is my favorite <laughs> Christmas song of all time. You're it's a wild so person. great. It is good. And then you got Christmas in Killarney, and then you follow it up with the freaking Malakalikimaka like Christmas Hawaiian Christmas song, which I, I love also love. Song. It's so great. So yeah. Listen to that and then listen to Tony Bennett's Christmas album. It's very, it's just classic and fun and nice to listen to. So get on it. Um, All right. I think that's it. It is it. We love you. Find us on Patreon. If you do, you'll get this little tidbit we're going to talk about next. Secret secrets are no fun. (laughs) Um, And just we're everywhere. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. We're on Twitter. We love to talk to you. We love emails at HerStoneOnTheRocks at gmail.com. We will do all of your requests. We have a long, long list. And Mm -hmm. we love every single one of them. And we appreciate you. And you're wonderful. Absolutely. We hope you have a very happy holiday wherever you are, however you are celebrating whatever time you're in whether it's easter when you're listening to this or the future or the future past so we love you thank you for listening and we want you to primarily though never forget that well-behaved women uh forget to come up with things for the podcast they do (laughs) uh totally forgot no it's totally fine um Never once in my life. Uh, well-behaved women, hey, love toothpaste. <laughs> don't ever, don't ever. <laughs> Who am right. I? You always make it up. So let's see if I can make one up now okay. on the fly. Okay, okay on the fly. You do it. Okay. And never forget that well-behaved women use one large marshmallow instead of a bunch of mini ones in their hot chocolate. That sounds like a French onion soup to me. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Bye. Cheers. And they really make history. Goodbye. Oh, my God. I'm going to start making <laughs> Keep your headphones on.
listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.